Bibles, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 12. And I'd like for us to get directly into our text verses today, starting with verse number 38. And you'll notice that this is a response to the false claims that people were making concerning Jesus, that he was actually an associate of Satan. Those of you that haven't been with us in our study might find that to be quite surprising that anyone would think that Jesus has anything at all to do with Satan, that he could work under the power of Satan. And yet that is what we see in this particular chapter. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse number 38, it says, Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees... Now, pay attention there to the word then, because that tells us it connects us with what's gone on before. So even though I'm preaching the message today from these few verses, they are not disconnected to everything that we studied previously here. Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas and behold a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it for she came from the uttermost part of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold a greater than Solomon is here. And I just realized I didn't ask you to stand for the reading of the word. So you want me to have you stand and read through it again? All right, well, I'll let you sit down. We've been through it, and you've heard the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We ask you, Lord, that you would be with us today and help us to have understanding from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I'd like to mention to you again, just briefly, as we're studying this portion of Scripture, that we are in this in the progress of this prolonged study in the Gospel of Matthew. And we do study verse by verse because we want to take our time here to clearly understand the implications of what we're reading. And we would expect that with a thorough examination of Scriptures that it would take us a long time, and that's because of the profundity of Scripture. The Bible is God's inspired book. And when we read Scripture, it's no different than if God was here visibly present with us today and he was speaking to you from this pulpit. Now, I don't claim to speak under inspiration of God. I'm preaching his word. But when the word is read, when we're reading God's word, these aren't my words. This is what God says in the Bible. And we would expect that what we find here is wisdom beyond our capabilities. Now, as I've talked about this in, in times past, that what we have to have is for God to open up our understanding to his word. Without that, we could never know what God is saying to us. We only understand truth when the Holy Spirit penetrates the heart with truth. And one of the most basic truths that we find in Scripture is the one that's hardest for people to accept, and that is the Bible's teaching on the sinfulness of man. And that is a doctrine that says that we are depraved in every faculty of our spiritual being, and it is that depravity that keeps us away from God. And it's not until we come face to face with the goodness of Jesus Christ and his perfection do we really begin to understand how truly wicked that we are. And that's even true of the most religious. 
We deceive ourselves many times by just covering up our wickedness with different acts of piety. We, we appear that we're doing good deeds and holy activities, while at the same time, what many people who claim to be Christians do is to hold themselves at arm's length, uh, uh, an arm's length relationship to the Bible. And when we get close to the Bible and when we read it like we do here, then that makeup starts to run. And what's underneath of that, the wickedness is revealed. And this is essentially what we find here in Matthew chapter 12 because Jesus confronted a very religious people. They were always doing what they thought were the works of God, many activities that they were involved in. But when they got too, too close to the true perfection of God, then that mask of hypocrisy was stripped away and underneath it what you found was their cold, dead, wicked hearts that in reality hated God. Now I'd like for you to notice, first of all today, in consideration of this scripture, the refusal to accept the Savior. That's what we're looking at here. With all the proof that's been given, there is refusal to receive him as the Christ. And this underlying hatred that these people had of God was exposed to the light by the reaction of the religious leaders to Jesus. He was God incarnate, and that was proven by signs and miracles But you notice the conclusion of the scribes and Pharisees to Christ's miracles, especially that of casting out demons, is found in verses 23 and 24. And this is where the people saw the demon cast out, and they began to wonder if Jesus could indeed be the Messiah. And the Pharisees had no answer for that. They they knew the miracles had been done. They had to admit it. They had to admit that there was something supernatural going on, but they were not going to say that he was from God because to do so would to expose them as false teachers. And so their claim against him is that this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, who is the prince of demons. And this is a claim that Jesus is actually the spawn of Satan. And what we find here then is the pinnacle of rejection of these religious leaders. At this point, they pass the point of no return. Because in spite of all the evidence that's given, in spite of the lordship and deity of Jesus Christ that has been proved, that he really uh, did have the power of the Holy Spirit in him, they said he is not of God, he is the ambassador of Satan. And so this chapter becomes a turning point in the ministry of Christ. Up to this point, his, his ministry is on the ascendancy. His star is rising, so to speak. And if Jesus had allowed it, he could have become the political savior of Israel right then. He could have declared himself to be their king at that particular point and then took over. But at the same time that his popularity was on the rise, so was the opposition of these religious leaders. It was also at its peak. And now they're at the point of trying to destroy him, and they will do it by any means necessary. So we come to verse number 38, and here we see more rejection, and it's going to end in Jesus pronouncing judgment on unbelievers. These are people that have all the proofs necessary to believe. They had even more proof than any previous generation... And their refusal to accept him as God and as the Christ meant that God was going to pronounce judgment upon them. And so what they did was to bring out the big guns, so to speak. And uh, I want to preview just a little bit of the last part of the message. Uh, there, there was plenty of evidence of the deity and the majesty and the perfection of Jesus Christ so that there was no excuse 
And we still have that today. We still have the same information. And in fact, we have more information, and I will explain it more next week. And this generation that we're living in will come into judgment for not knowing the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice here how these people come to Jesus after making this claim against him. How do they come to him? Well, this is the subtle approach of Christ's enemies that we find in verse number 38. Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Now, these are the same people that shortly before said that Jesus had cast out a demon. They admitted that. And now they approach Jesus with pretended respect, and they call him master. And I should tell you that this is probably part of a hand-picked group. These are the best of them. These are the ones that claimed he had uh, his power to cast out demons came from Satan. So these are probably the most learned in this group. It says here, then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered. And as I said just a moment ago, what they're doing here is they're bringing out the big guns, the, the ones that have spent the most time in achieving the status of scribes. These would be the most respected lawyers of the Jewish system, the most learned. And they approach him with the title, of master and as they say that it's just dripping with hypocrisy master is a title of respect master is the title given to the best of the Jewish rabbis this is the title that's given to the most erudite among them and so they called Jesus master when actually it was their intent to prove the opposite and they used this term because they knew how the people felt about him Uh, the people considered him to be on par with the best of their rabbis You remember that after he taught the Sermon on the Mount, in the end of that sermon, the Bible says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So the people saw the wisdom, they saw the authoritative manner of his speech, and they were amazed at the gravitas. And they'd never heard anything like it before, never seen anything like it before. And since that time, what the scribes and Pharisees had tried to do was to chip away at that authority. They tried to prove him wrong. So what did they do? Well, they took the scriptures, and they tried to prove things out of the scriptures. But Jesus is the master of that as well. He's the author of the scriptures. And so every time that they came to him with some kind of an accusation with their own interpretation, Jesus gave them the right one and put them to shame. So here they are, they're back one more time, and they come with this pretended lip service, and they call him master, but their intent is to ask him to do something they don't think he could possibly do. And so with this, with this, with this pretended respect and politeness, they come and they ask for a sign that they were convinced he could not provide. Now let me take a little side note on this for just a moment. This same pretended piety and lip service to the word of God is the very same that we find in liberal churches today. Now, remember that Jesus Christ himself is the living word of God. And there are plenty of churches that will mention the name of Jesus and they pretend they're worshiping the Jesus of the Bible, but they don't really have a doctrine that that says who he really is. I'll give an example of this. Uh, The Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses deny the deity of Jesus Christ. 
Now, what they do is they pretend that they're honoring him, but in reality, what their doctrine does is to tear down the very basic fundamental teachings of God's word. Because if Jesus is not the Christ, if he is not deity, if he wasn't God in the flesh, then we have no atonement for our sins. We have no sacrifice for sin. He's the only one being God that could provide that sacrifice. And so we have to believe that Jesus was exactly everything that the Bible claims that he is. And so you can take the morality of those people, take the morality of the Mormons, and you can applaud them for their sense of family, applaud them for their compassionate humanitarianism. And we do wish that the true people of God had more of it. But you take all of that and you put it face to face with Jesus Christ and what the Bible says about him and the mask of the Mormons is pulled away. And underneath, you don't have lovers of the true God. You find haters of Jesus Christ. Now, that might seem a little bit strong. But what you can't do is you cannot tear down the deity of Jesus Christ and at the same time claim that you're on his side. You can't present a false Christ and one who can't be the Savior. And so you have many people, many people that get the name right. They use some of the same terminology that we use, but when they speak, they mean something very, very different about who Christ is. And that is the bane of false Christianity. I mean, even among those that claim to be orthodox, and yet what they do from the pulpit is refuse to preach about sin and repentance, and they refuse to preach about the necessity of faith in Christ and and refuse to talk about hell and the death of Christ on the cross. Those people that attend churches that never speak from the Bible, that never talk about the sinfulness of man, folks, they are preaching a different Jesus. They have the name right, but they've got the person wrong. They're describing a very different Jesus. And what that is, is just a very subtle attempt to call him master. But pay no attention at all to what the master says. So they call him Lord, but they never do what he says. Now if we take another little trip back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said there, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now, I I don't claim that Brian Baptist Church is the only church that preaches truth. I don't claim that we're the island out here in the middle of a vast ocean and the only refuge that you can be found is right here. This is the only truth that there is, the, the, the only place that ever preaches truth. But I will tell you this, folks. You must try every church and you must try every preacher by the word of God. Does this person, does this church say what Jesus said? Do they teach what Jesus taught? And I would say that in most churches in our area, you're never going to get that far because they're not going to repeat what Jesus said. The message is simply too harsh for them. It's not for their taste. And the idea that man is wicked and depraved and that man really needs a Savior, that, that he's going to hell without Christ, that has no part of their message. And so they say that they're Christian and they approach Jesus by saying, Master, Master, but it's nothing but lip service. And they have no intention of giving an heir to the doctrines of Christ that they deserve. Now, going back to the subtlety of these scribes and Pharisees, they were pretending to be on the side of the people. They said that we recognize that he is a teacher, that he is a rabbi, he is a master. And that whole thing still puzzles me greatly because how can you in one breath say, well, here's a fellow that cast out demons by Satan? 
I mean, how in one breath can you say he's in league with Satan and then the other turn around and call him master and great teacher and rabbi or any such thing? And I suppose that that gives us some insight into the mesmerizing hold that these people had on, uh, these, these leaders had on the people. The people assume they are correct. The people assume they're not to be questioned. And do you know there are many folks that are ignorant of Scripture by choice or by design of their religious gurus and they're unable to detect hypocrisy in their leaders? I think you see that today in the Word of Faith movement. I think you see it in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I think you see it in the charismatic movement. And in the Roman Catholic Church or anything similar to it, there is ignorance of Scripture by choice or by design. And that kind of hypocrisy just or this kind, rather, just slips by unnoticed. So they ask for a sign. And I want to save this for a little bit later concerning the sign. But the religious leaders put it out there. There's something missing. There's something missing from Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. He'd done many amazing miracles. There's no doubt of that. No one questioned the miracles are real. And yet they say there is still some sign Something that the Messiah must do, or this person must do to prove that he, that he is the Messiah. And the people just assumed that that was correct. They're the leaders. They're the ones that know the truth. They're the ones that have studied Scripture. And so if they say, if they say there's something else that the Messiah must do, then yes, there must be something else. Even though we have all of this proof, there's not enough to show that he is the Messiah. And we're going to see later that Jesus shows them one more time a miraculous, astounding, incontrovertible, incontrovertible miracle that proves that without doubt he is God, that he is the Messiah, and it will be illustrated by the prophet Jonah. Illustrated by something that comes out of the Old Testament. So they come with that subtle approach. The scribes and Pharisees are getting their dig in at Jesus. They ask him something politely for that which they were quite convinced he couldn't provide. And they said, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Listen to his response in verse 39. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, but there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Now I want you to notice here in this next part, the spiritual adultery of Israel. The spiritual adultery of Israel. If you'll glance back at verse number 34, it says, O generation of vipers, and this is Jesus speaking, O generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? Now, some people don't like it when I speak harsh words about false teachers. Some people don't like what I've said just a few minutes ago. I'm rarely, rarely do I ever speak as harshly as Jesus did and the apostles did about those who lie while holding a Bible in their hands. Jesus calls them vipers. In verse number 39, he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. Let's camp on that one for just a minute. I want to give you a, a practical application here before I explain to you what Jesus means when he says that they are an evil and adulterous generation. Adultery is one of the most serious sins that are, that's mentioned in the Bible. As you know, there are ten commandments. There are only ten of them. And the seventh one says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. 
Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention to you that the Ten Commandments cover every situation possible, every scenario. You can't think of a sin that falls outside of the bounds of the Ten Commandments. But nevertheless, we have these ten big ones, and number seven is about the sin of adultery. And in in several lists of terrible sins that you find in the Bible, adultery is usually among those lists. Now, just to show you the kind of company that it keeps, the neighborhood that it lives in, I want to read to you from Galatians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul says here in Galatians 5, 19, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, do you see the neighbors of adultery? Their sins like idolatry, witchcraft, murder, and so on. And what if I were to tell you today that Berean Baptist Church has decided that we're going to open up our doors and we will be a haven for murderers? If you decide to kill the girl next door, that's all right. We're not going to judge you for that. If that's your thing, you go ahead and do that. We're not going to say anything about it. Now, some of you might get real mad about what I'm going to say next, but can you tell me why that in some churches there is not one word said about adultery? That you can be a member of the church, that you can have all the rights and privileges of membership, that you can be served the communion, that you can do anything that you want, and nobody is ever going to mention your adultery. And so you can sleep with whomever that you want, you can live with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, you can date somebody's husband or wife, and that's okay. Do you see any rationale for that in the Scripture? I mean, do you see the company that this sin keeps? It's mentioned in these lists with stealing and lying and murder and idolatry, and somehow the church has put this sin into its own category. It's one that we never talk about. It's one that we're not going to mention, and I suppose so many people do it that it becomes acceptable. I mean, can you explain that to me? I think the reason is the church has adapted the lifestyle of the world so that cohabitating without marriage is so commonplace that it's just assumed. You turn on a television show and, and sex without marriage is as natural and acceptable as having Cheerios for breakfast. And so they bring it into the church, people allowed in the church, and nobody says anything about it. Let me say something about that. We have to preach about it because Christ preached about it. He said that it's unacceptable. This is a Christian church, folks. It's his church. And so we're going to say what Jesus said. And Jesus framed it in such terms that he was far stricter on this subject than we even dare to be. He says in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So Jesus says, even the thought of this, the lust of it, will make you guilty. And you follow that logic, how much more serious is the act? And this was Jesus' point to the Pharisees when he said this. They thought they're okay. We haven't committed the act, so we're all right. And Jesus said, the thought is there. It's in your brain, it's in your head, you're aching to do it anyway, and your heart condemns you. That's the point. But surely we can see... Surely we can see how terrible it is if you actually commit the act. Now, there are 
uh, numbers of times, I should say, that Jesus addressed this. And we can't escape this, that Jesus upheld Old Testament law concerning it. Again, he's the author of the Old Testament law. But then you have people that come along and say, well, what about the woman accused of adultery and Jesus let her go? And you can read about that story in John chapter 8. And Jesus was speaking to the woman at the end of that incident, and he said to her, woman, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned you? And she said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And and they stop right there. And that phrase sticks in their mind, neither do I condemn you. And so the opinion is, well, Jesus says it's all right. If I do it, it's okay. And they stopped right there, and they didn't read the rest of it, where Jesus said, go and sin no more. If you want Jesus' take on it, you don't say, well, Jesus says it's all right to commit adultery. He says, don't do it. And he says, don't sin anymore. And then going back to the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about the danger of hell for people that don't obey God's law. So I don't see how a church can afford to ignore this and preach from the Bible. But at the same time, I want to say this. There might be someone in the congregation who says, oh, I've never done anything like that. I, I've never committed adultery. I wouldn't do that. I'm faithful to my wife. I'm all of that. Uh, I'm not going to do this sin. And I don't say all of this with a scornful attitude because there are dozens of sins that I could bring up. There are all kinds of things that I can talk about. And it's our desire that people would receive Christ and they would obey him. It doesn't matter what he says. Obey it all. Believe it all. Accept it all. This is why I spoke about depravity in the beginning, that all of us are guilty of sin against God. We we haven't escaped that because we became Christians. We still sin against God. But what we desire for people to do is to hear the word of God, heed the word of God, pay attention to the warnings, and obey God in all that he says. We encourage people to receive Christ. Now let me come back to the point at hand. Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. So what does he mean by that? Is he, is he addressing some propensity for these leaders and, uh, to find, and, their, and their followers to find women to sleep with? Is that what he has in mind? No, what he's doing here is explaining an Old Testament way of describing Israel's relationship with Jehovah God. Israel, in a metaphorical sense, was referred to as the wife of Jehovah. Israel was in a very special covenant relationship with God. He claimed them as his own, and he demanded faithfulness to him. But Israel had rejected that covenant. And so instead of living with fidelity to the one true God, they began to worship false gods, and they bowed down to the idols of the heathens, even going as far as to sacrifice their own children to these gods. And Jesus, or rather God, calls that unfaithfulness adultery, that Israel had prostituted itself with heathen gods. I'd like you to turn with me for a moment to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 13. Many passages we can go to to demonstrate this type of language that Jesus uses in Matthew 12. But the concept here is very vividly displayed for us in Jeremiah. Jeremiah was one of God's prophets. He was a messenger to Israel at a time when they had abandoned the worship of Jehovah God. And so Jeremiah warned them of coming destruction, uh, uh, the captivity of the Assyrians. He warned them about that. And if you look at chapter 13, beginning in verse number 22, Jeremiah is speaking to the people. He says, And if thou say in thine heart, Wherefore come these things upon me? He's telling them, If you're 
if you're asking, why are the Assyrians coming? Why are all these problems that we're having? Why is all this happening to us? If you're asking that, then he has the answer. For the greatness of thine iniquity are thy skirts discovered and thy heels made bare. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Therefore will I scatter them as the stubble that passeth away by the wind of the wilderness. This is thy lot, the portion of thy measures from me, saith the Lord. In other words, I'm bringing this upon you because thou hast forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Therefore will I discover thy skirts upon thy face that thy shame may appear. I have seen thine adulteries and thy nayings, the lewdness of thy whoredom, and thine abominations on the hills and the fields. Woe unto thee, O Jerusalem! Wilt thou not be made clean? When shall it once be? Now, do you notice phrases there like, I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, that thy shame may appear. This is a rough passage for me to deal with from a pulpit on Sunday morning. But this phraseology here, and I don't want to be crude, but this refers to lewd, immoral conduct. And it means the uncovering of unmentionable parts of the body so that everybody can see. It's the kind of thing that's done in a situation with prostitutes. Then verse 27 says, I have seen thine adulteries and thy nayings. That means your lust and your strong desires to do evil. The lewdness of thy whoredom and thy abominations on the fields. All of this, all of this has sexual connotations to it. And it means to portray Israel as a wife that has abandoned her husband. A wife that is unfaithful. So that's the language that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 12. It's stinging language. There's really nothing pretty about this. He's already called them vipers. Now he refers to them as being nasty and immoral. They're a filthy abomination to God while they pretend to be holy. And I can't help but compare that to what we see in the Christian world today among the leadership of many churches. The other day I was reading about one of the large charismatic Word of Faith churches in Orlando where the pastor was involved with drugs and illicit sex. A few years ago, the leader of the National Association of Evangelicals was involved in drugs and a homosexual relationship. And we're all too familiar with the scandals in the Roman Catholic Church with a pedophile priest and all the cover-up that's gone along with that. And that scandal hit right here in the Santa Rosa Diocese. It's admitted by many Roman Catholics today that the priesthood is filled with pedophiles and new applicants for the priesthood and the celibacy of it are actually homosexuals. That is the kind of generation that Jesus deplores and he warns them of the judgment of God. And so Jesus is saying here that these are the kinds of people that follow false gods and these are the ones that would ask him to give a sign. They are unbelievers. And if they had a right relationship with the one true God, they would believe him for what he says, not asking for something else to be given. Nothing different than what he's already decided. And this thing of signs, that's a long-standing issue with the Jews. They couldn't believe simply because God said it. Not when proof has already been given. They're looking for something more substantial here. When they're asking for Jesus for a sign, you know what they're thinking about? They're thinking, Jesus, could you rearrange the heavens? Could you do something in the sky? Put some kind of big writing up there so it'll let us know who you truly are. 
You know what the Apostle Paul said about this? He said that the way that people are drawn to salvation is by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the truth of what Jesus did on the cross to save us from our sins, and we accept that by faith. We don't accept it because we see something supernatural. Paul said the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but he says we preach Christ crucified. Ironically, Christ crucified was the biggest stumbling block to both the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews wanted a political savior. They want a Christ that doesn't die. They want a conqueror. The Greeks can't believe that God could possibly come in human flesh, and certainly that he would not go to the cross. And what is it people want today? Do they want the simple truth of the gospel of Christ? Do they want a gospel that exposes their sinfulness and their shame and shows that they have no help in self? That's not what you hear preached today. The fastest growing Christian denominations are those that are still relying on signs. These are people that have tongue gifts and faith healers and promises of material wealth. And it's the same old selfish desire that says, what can you do to satisfy me? What can you give me that shows that I'm at the center of the universe instead of God? And that's the problem with the scribes and Pharisees. They're hypocrites. They have no intention in any case of believing in Jesus. Even if he did something in the heavens, if he did rearrange the heavens, they just have another excuse. It's not enough. He cast out demons by the prince of demons. So he's of Satan. He may have power, but there's no way that he's God. Now, here's what I want to leave you with today. And we're going to come back to the scripture next week. It's a simple question. What is it that you expect from Jesus? What what are you expecting to get from Jesus? You know, I have many people that stop by my office, people that come in off the street. They have problems. Their lives are all messed up. They have many different issues. They're looking for a solution. But I never approach any problem unless I start with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to know, what is it that you believe? Why did you come into this church? What are you expecting? Are you willing to receive him as Savior and Lord? Are you willing to surrender to your life your life to Christ, to surrender to his authority? Are you willing to listen to his commands and to obey him? And I don't have to say that the majority of the time I never get any further because people come in with a different idea. They come in with a different expectation of who Jesus is. And when they're exposed to what Jesus really says and what he teaches, they're uncomfortable with that. And their real desire is to be what it's always been. They come seeking something for self and not for God. And I have to tell you, the approach is all wrong. Jesus has to be first. He must be the Savior and Lord. You must be willing to surrender to him. And when you come to him in faith for your salvation, he may not change your outward circumstances, but he will change you to make you understand what it is that matters the most. He knows how to heal broken hearts. He knows how to set captives free. He knows how to heal your hurt. He is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, and he did all of it for you by hanging on that old rugged cross. And it is by his death that we are enabled to be set free from the bondage of sin. Now, here's the thing about it. When you come to Jesus, you you can't come with this pretended piety You can't come with your hypocrisy because he sees right through that. He exposes that facade of fake religion. 
And the question is, are you willing to accept his evaluation of you? Not are you going to receive who Christ is and do you accept the evaluation of him? You have to be ready, first of all, to accept his evaluation of you. What does he say about you? What does he say about your wicked heart and what needs to be done about it? And when you get that out of the way, when you understand who you are in the sight of the Almighty God, that's when you're ready to be saved. He's given all the proof necessary of who he is. Now it's time for you to believe who you are and what the Bible says about you and what you need in order to be saved. We pray the Holy Spirit will open up your heart to that truth today to see what's wrong with you and then come to Jesus as the only one who can help you, correct you, and save you from your sins. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and what a blessing it is to open your word and to see the truths that you have for us. I ask you, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts today. If there's someone here who's having difficulty with this, who doesn't understand this, we just pray, Lord, the Holy Spirit would guide them into this truth, understanding who Jesus is and what he's done, understanding who we are and why we so desperately need a Savior. We cannot help ourselves. Lord, we pray that you'd speak to some heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.